All right. I'm just going to start. Uh, we just finished prayer, so I apologize for those online. Uh, we had a technical difficulty, but I'm going to go ahead and dig into part 19 of the Lord is our confidence. On Thursday, uh, we began service with some holy scripture. I want to begin there as well. Uh, go to John 6:51. John 6:51. So we'll pick up kind of in the same vein uh, that we started with on Thursday. John 6, 51. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And so therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And on this topic of difficulty that's been coming from the pulpit uh, this past week and a little beyond up here on the board, we're going to borrow this statement up here on the board. This is a difficult statement, the disciples said. Jesus had no reservations challenging his disciples. He knew that that would hit uh, a sort of, not a brick wall, but there would be some consternation uh, that some would be confounded by what he was saying. Um, and so he had no problem with that, though. And that's an important topic for us to ponder uh, because some of the messages that come from this pulpit are often difficult, sometimes tough pills to swallow, difficult pills to swallow. Uh, and that's perfectly okay. That's perfectly okay. Uh, Jesus had no reservations challenging his disciples. And a good under-shepherd, like yours truly, ought to confidently follow his example. An unchallenged sheep is one who doesn't grow. It's actually in my job description to preach in season and out of season. When Paul wrote that, when the Bible says that out of season means it's probably going to be challenging for you because it's not a pleasant experience always to hear what the truth has to say about your life. You may be maligned, you may be disjoint, disoriented with what the Word has to say about God's purposes for you. And when you hear it, it might sting a little bit. When you hear it, it might challenge you, it might put you back on your heels. So an unchallenged sheep is one who doesn't grow. When Jesus said, my yoke is easy, in Matthew 11:30, it was a relative statement, that comparing to uh, living in the flesh in this world, which is just exhausting. 
My yoke is easy. That's a relative statement. I wrote a blog for you this past week titled Grace, Works, and Indifference to address this very point. To address this very point. If you're, or if you were paying attention a couple of weeks back even when I wrote emotional salvation isn't enough, the Spirit weaved a similar theme. What's that theme? The point has been regarding grace. Do not miss it. This is from this week's blog up here on the board. Grace, works, and indifference. Quote from the blog, A convicted person is forced to exert themselves. The gospel demands it. That's a very important point. The gospel never leaves someone unchanged. It forces, remember like the Makaira, Hebrews 4, 12? It forces a situation in the soul of the hearer. It leaves no one unchanged. A convicted person is forced to exert themselves. The gospel demands it. This work is in the struggle either to cast aside the sinful pride of life and pursue salvation or to reject the gospel or, as I wrote, even remain indifferent to it, which is work of itself. Read Romans 1, active voice. They have to actively reject the truth about God. That in of itself is work. Or, again, to reject the gospel or even remain indifferent to it, striving, as I noted, uh, it's, uh, the uh, cognate in English is to agonize, to, uh, agizonomai uh, in the Greek. It means to agonize, striving, agonize, wrestling match uh, in one direction or the other doesn't increase or diminish the value of the cross in any way. I think, sadly, people are confused about that. They're confused about that. They think that the truth is actually something it is not. That somehow, when we teach that truth, somehow we're adding a works to the gospel, and we are not. The work is finished. Jesus Christ said 2,000 years ago, Tetelestai. That work is finished. Buttoned up, zipped up, done. It's a grace gift. It cannot be added to or diminished. My great fear in contemporary Christianity is that people have bought an insidious lie regarding grace. Grace is well-defined as the unmerited favor of God. The unmerited favor of God. However, many seem to have turned that into something it isn't. A sort of, quote, Grace means I can be lazy because God has promised to do all the work attitude. That's a lie. Some have turned grace into something it isn't. A sort of grace means I can be lazy because God has promised to do all the work attitude. That attitude exists in the Bible. It does. It's there. But it describes the deceived. Some who uh, sadly end up in the lake of fire. It's almost as if contemporary Christianity is saying to God, you didn't do enough for us to secure our salvation, so we're going to add to grace by assuming it meets our fleshly sensibilities. Newsflash. Listen, please. 
God's grace has boundary conditions on it. Don't believe me? Read James 4, 6. God gives grace to who? Okay, is that not a boundary? And he's opposed to who? The proud, the arrogant. Is that not a boundary condition? Like literally in Holy Scripture, right in your face? Yeah. God's grace has boundary conditions on it. Man's flesh doesn't like it because man wants a bunch of free stuff. Right? That's how fleshly man wants to perceive or conceive of God. That God just, you know, just is like, oh, whatever. I'm just such a gracious, loving God. I'm just going to like just go. To even people I'm going to sentence to the lake of fire. To even people who are willingly disobedient, willingly disoriented. God's grace has boundary conditions on it. The Bible dogmatically teaches that God gives grace to, tho- to those whom he has deemed qualified to receive it. And that by his mercy alone, that happens, not our perverted estimations of it. I don't get to tell God how to spend his grace, in other words. I don't get to make that demand on him. He's the holy, sovereign God. He's in charge. I can't tell him, well, you're offensive to my human sensibilities. I think everybody should be saved. There are people out there that teach there's no such thing as hell. And they call themselves Christians. I don't know what Bible they're reading. I don't know what Jesus was taught. Jesus talked about hell seven times more than heaven. How did, what was he talking about then? Again, the Bible dogmatically teaches that God gives grace to those whom he has deemed qualified to receive it. And that is by his mercy alone, not our perverted estimations of it. This begins with salvation proper, of course, which is why Jesus often challenged his disciples, and some of them actually left him. Some actually left. If grace were, let me put, I asked DJ this this morning. If grace were as, quote, easy as contemporary Christianity suggests, why hasn't everyone who's ever heard the gospel for the first time believe? If it was that, quote, easy, why hasn't everyone believed? As soon as they hear the gospel, everyone would believe, right? I mean, it's that, it's that easy. There's no, there's no agony. There's no, there's no counting the cost. There's no repentance. There's none of that. It's just that easy. Why isn't everybody saved then? You know the answer. That's the point. But that's where dead-end doctrine and poor, watered-down gospels end up. If you follow them through to completion, past your own laziness, past your human sensibilities, you end up with something bogus, something that doesn't work with Holy Scripture, something that doesn't fit with our Lord's own words. Because there's a wrestling match going on, and if you don't know what I'm referring to, Read the blog because of that. Again, look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? You see there's wrangling going on. There's agonizing. There's a certain wrestling match going on in their souls. That's what the truth does. The truth hits you right here, and you have to deal with it. You can't get away from it. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, 
said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then, if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. That's the other choice. Some stayed, some left. So here's the principle from this past week on this, up here on the board. Difficult messages force us to face our convictions, stimulating growth in us, if we choose rightly. Difficult messages are designed to make us grow. You want them. You want to be tested, the way that we saw David requesting of the Lord. Test my heart to see if there's any wrongness in me. I want to know. Do I pass the test? Again, John 6.66, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And then look what he says in verse uh, part B of uh, 67. You do not want to go away also, do you? You do not want to go away also, do you? In other words, he's challenging them. You want to go too? Because it's difficult? Because what? You don't, you're a little confounded right now? You're going to run away? That might be happening to some of you right now. What's this bald guy talking about? Yeah, I read the blog. The blog I, didn't, I didn't get it. I'm just going to walk away because I don't get it. I love Peter's response. I mean, this is, should be all our response. Verse 68. Simon Peter had answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? That's a really good question. <laughs> Where else are you going to go from Jesus? If you're a disciple of Jesus, Jesus says, I'll teach you. Follow me. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go after you've been to the, the pinnacle? Where, where do you go after Jesus, honestly? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Two things always happen when a person is challenged by the truth. And there's never an in-between, even if they suppose there is. For example, indifference is actually a no thank you, is it not? It's actually a no thank you. They say, oh, no, I'm going to play Switzerland. No, you basically said no thank you. You won't be offensive as a response. You won't be aggressive in your reaction. You're just going to remain indifferent. But that is still a response. That's still an active choice. And like I said, Romans 1, that choice requires a daily activity. To remain indifferent to the truth about God, about Jesus Christ specifically, you have to take an active role in that. Because God has designed every person to receive the gospel to understand it wholly. Otherwise, God would be unjust when the gavel comes down and says, you're the wheat and you're the chaff. You're going to heaven, you're going to hell. He would be unjust if that opportunity did not occur in every single person's soul. 
So indifference is actually a no thank you. Anyone that says, you know, meh, like the bloghead, meh, meh, that's a decision. Some run away, but others stay, like Peter. Where are we going to go? Jesus challenged his disciples, as do I, because he didn't want any of them going to their grave deceived. Up here on the board. Love takes risks. Jesus knew that as soon as he said something challenging, some would leave. I know that. I teach challenging messages sometimes, and people don't want to hear it. Sometimes they get so challenging, people leave. And then I say to myself, where are they going to go? It's not like I wasn't teaching the unadulterated truth. I was actually teaching the truth from the Word of God. Where, where are you going to go after that? Where do you go after you learn the truth? I always wonder that. Like, where did you go? Like Jesus, Jesus preferred to offend people with the truth rather than coddle them with a lie. What say you of this brand of love? Is it good or evil? What say you of your own love this day? Is it good or evil? Some of you have friends and or loved ones that you've shown more evil to than you can shake a stick at. And I'm not just talking about, you know, name-calling or you know, coming home grouchy or, you know, some off-colored joke or something. I'm talking about other things. I'm talking about all of it. Let me explain. Some of you have friends and loved ones that you've shown more evil to than you can shake a stick at. You take offense with guys like me for saying so, but that doesn't change the truth about the situation. For example, if you've ever knowingly endorsed ignorance, or arrogance about the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've lied to that person. Yes, you've lied to them. And suppose you, like some of you are saying, well, I just didn't say anything. They were talking about, I don't know, what's the religion of the day, Kabbalah or something? They were talking about some spiritual something, and I just didn't say anything. You've passively lied to that person. And there is such a thing in social dynamics, so please don't act stupid. Don't do that thing. Let me, if, if you say to a person, hey, I never lied to you. Have you ever gotten this one? I never lied to you. I just never told you the whole truth. I never lied. I just never told you the whole truth. Like, you know, don't ask, don't tell. That's a passive lie. It's a satanic device used to skirt the real issue, whatever it happens to be. And frankly, we don't have time to play games here, if you haven't figured that out. I'm here to express my love for the Lord, and therefore to you. And I do so by functioning in my God-given, God-empowered spiritual gift by teaching and equipping you with the truth even when it is offensive. The truth 
always offends someone. Amen? It just does. It, it's always offensive to someone. Even outside of spirit, the spiritual realm. Just if you were to walk into a party and say, hey, I don't know, something, some truth, somebody in that party is not going to like what you just said. When I used to do um, a lot of uh, speaking in industry, they said that no matter how good you are at your job, no matter how much you're telling the truth, just 15%, upwards of 15% of the people just won't like you. They'll just be offended by you, just by probably your face or whatever. Who the heck knows? Right? Does it really matter? No. That's just truth always, always offends people. Up here on the board, love takes risks. A good friend takes the risk of offending someone they love for their friend's sake. Quote, so I have become your enemy by telling you the truth, Galatians 4.16. Quote, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? If I exert myself more for your benefit, if I tell you the truth, sometimes even knowing it's going to be offensive to you, what do you think is easier for a guy like me? Coming in here and say, Jesus loves you. Everybody's like, yay. Right? Or, you're way out of line. Whoa. Which one's easier? Of course, right? Everybody wants, everybody wants to be like, yay. That takes love. It takes more force of love to get over that hump. If I do that more, am I to be loved less? Pretty much. Oh, people love the preachers who just preach, you know, oh, my ministry is just a ministry of encouragement. Then you're really not a pastor. You probably have the gift of encouragement, so stop calling yourself a pastor because the pastor has a staff and a rod, and the rod stings. So your little ministry of encouragement, the one that has 50,000 people and you sell 10 million books a year, that thing is a farce. Stop calling yourself a pastor. You are not a pastor. You're a liar. And all these people that are wandering you around because they're weak, they're being harmed by you. That's not love. Love does not seek to harm individuals. It seeks to build them up, to equip them. Read Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. To equip the saints for the work, for the work of service. Do you understand the difference? It's actually work out there. Guys like me are going to die someday. Some of you are like, yay. Right? Guys like me are going to die someday, which means other people have to be raised up in my stead to do that work of equipping again. If all I do is encourage you, you're such a swell person. How is that challenging you ever? And therefore, how are you ever going to really grow? It's good to get those messages once in a while. To be encouraged, right? But there's a whole other side to love. And love takes that risk. It says, I love you enough to encourage you, but I also love you enough to discipline you. And as the Bible says, that's what a good father does. The ones who truly love their children, they discipline them to train them up. Oddly enough, with all that said, I can't count the number of times I've been accused of attacking someone when all I was trying to do was love them. Why are you attacking me? Don't judge me. 
I'm sure some of you can relate, especially uh, you parents out there, up here on the board, on the topic of love and pain. If an expression of a pure love causes you pain, do not make the grave mistake of blaming the one loving you. If an expression of pure love causes you pain, do not make the grave mistake of blaming the one loving you. The pain is fruit of your malignancy with the truth. That's the problem. The problem is not the pastor or the one, the friend that's telling you the truth, whoever that might be. The pain comes from you being maligned. You being in a malignant estate. You being disoriented to the truth. Freedom is available to those who receive the truth in gratitude. Go to John 8.31. John 8.31. John 8.31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You see? You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. But what if that truth is painful? What if it's a difficult pill to swallow? So, do you see any qualification there? It says only the truth that like, you know, rubs you the right way? No, it says the truth. The truth is the truth. The truth is immutable. It never changes. You might be, in some ways, aligned with it, and in other ways, maligned with it. The pain comes from your malignancy. Not the messengers, not the truth. It's not the truth's fault that you're out of whack. That you, you know, your joints hurt because it's, you know, out of joint. That's the point on the board, love and pain. If an expression of pure love causes you pain, do not make the grave mistake of blaming the one loving you. The pain is fruit of your malignancy with the truth. Freedom is available to those who receive that truth in gratitude. So you get to that point like David or Paul or anyone that you've known that's pretty advanced and matured that even suffering and pain you're grateful for. That's how you kind of know that you're growing up in the faith. That even when something hits you really hard and it really challenges you and puts you back on your heels, you're grateful to the Lord. And you're even grateful to the friend who had the love to give it to you. Do not fall into the trap of thinking that my intentions on your behalf are anything but noble. And don't even rely on perception, strictly speaking. Rely on faith. Faith comes from hearing the word, the word of Christ. Rely on faith. This is what you need to remember as truth. Don't just look at a situation. Don't just, you know, you drive up over here and it's like, oh, that's a nice little church. Look at the converted bonds, a nice cross, and the people look okay, and, you know, it's nicely lit, and there's like a pulpit. And that, that must mean that he's teaching the truth. That's a lie. That's a lie. It's not about perception. Not about perception. I have a pretty good vocabulary, pretty good speaker from 20 years of speaking engagements and stuff like that. So, what if I talk like this? 
Some of you are like, I would be out of here. That's your fault. My heart didn't change about the truth. That just goes to show how depraved you are. You're looking to be entertained. You need to rely on the faith. What's actually true? What's the word of Christ say? Because that is what delivers you. The truth shall make you free. Not the pastor Ed. Not the pastor shiny teeth and curly cues. Not the oh, woman pastor. There's no such thing. Not that thing either. Faith. Rely on faith. Learn to see beyond the personality and hear the message coming from this pulpit. I know I have a strange personality sometimes. It's often grating. To be fair, sometimes it's sweet. You guys are like, it's rare. So? So what? That's my personality. I have no problem with it. God made me this way. But you know what? I'm no different than any other character in human history. Many we read about in the Bible. Personality doesn't change the truth. So do not allow your flesh to discern important things for you. Don't let your flesh do that thing up here on the board. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. On Thursday, the Spirit challenged us. And there he goes again, if you think about it. Imagine that, he challenges us. With a little back-of-napkin math. I call that back of you know what I mean by that? You know, you're sitting at a table and you're like, oh, I got this idea, you know, let me just check this out. You know, you kind of scribble out some stuff on a napkin. So we call this a back-of-napkin math. It's not precise, so... He quickly established that the average American spends about one-third of their time in front of a TV. Yeah. Doesn't count smartphones or the Internet. That's just TV. One-third of their waking time in front of their wake time in front of a television. If you don't believe America is a TV culture, just go to your local restaurant. Not the Venus de Milo types. Chances are, if it's been modernized, it has a bazillion large flat-screen TVs hanging all over the place. There's sometimes I can't even look up. It's almost like the, second, the top half of the walls at the restaurant are covered with flat screens. Like One time I counted, it was like 40. 40, like 50-inch flat screens. I'm like, I'm just trying to get a meal. I just wanted to try out some new ribs, right? And I have AD, so I'm like, ah, I'm going to put like this giant visor on just so I didn't have to look at all these stupid TVs. And it's all garbage, right? And then I'm a man, so what do they do? You know, sports channel comes on, the Dorito commercial, what do you get? Scantily clad. And then I'm like, oh, man, now I'm stumbling. My wife's right here. Now I'm looking at some girl in a bikini that's trying to sell me Doritos. Right? Now I'm failing. I'm flopping. I'm like, now the, wing, the wings don't taste as good. You know, the whole event is just trashed, right? Because we, li <laughs> we live in a TV environment. That's our culture, is it not? TV's hanging all over the place. Can you say economics 101? Without a demand, there'd be no need for a supply. 
There's a reason why there's 40 televisions in that place. It's because people want them. People go to a restaurant with 40 televisions over the one that has none. Why? It's just an extension of their, the culture that they're comfortable with, the one they live in, in their own house. So there is a demand by the looks of it. In any case, a church like this one is perceived as too, I don't know, in your face because it's offensive to most people's lazy attitude about education. The truth is we live in a passive culture in America. And you are Americans. And because of it, you have been infected, whether you choose to admit it or not. The result is, as the Spirit established on Thursday up here on the board, the disease. Passive culture demands, even expects others to meet its desires without question. That becomes the thing. Like, it's an entitlement culture because now everybody's just spoon-feeding you everything, and you don't even have to get off your couch anymore, and you just get entertained all day long, what's the expectation? That that's life. Now you're entitled to be spoon-fed everything. Like a lot of people who find out they have six months to live, most of you don't even know, before you're informed anyways, that you have been infected that you're dying of a disease, so to speak. Like a good physician, my job is to break the bad news to you. Up here on the board, Deuteronomy 30, 19, the new living. Today I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You have to choose the truth never leaves you be. Once you're touched by it, you know, people, th this is why people go, whoa, because they know, right? It's like, whoa, almost touched it. You like that move? One of my old dance moves. No? That was something in the 80s, I'm just saying. People do, <laughs> people do that thing, right? Because they know, you know deep down inside that if the truth touches you, it's it, you're stuck with it, right? You're stuck with it. So the idea that a lot of people play is they just make sure they never get touched by the truth. But the nice thing is that once you have it, that's it. Now you're, you're literally forced to make a choice. As I wrote in this past week's blog, the truth never leaves a person unchanged. Truth always changes you. Always. Never leaves you unchanged. Here's the truth you need to commit to memory up here on the board. On the idea of active learning, given the fact that we live in a passive culture, quote, examining the scriptures daily, that was the Bereans, remember, they didn't even just listen to the pastors that came through. They didn't just listen to them. They said, is what they're saying true? I'm going to check out the, the Word. I'm going to examine Scripture. That's what you should do with me. You shouldn't just take my word for it. Do it. Have your own convictions. See it in the Word of God for yourself. My job isn't to spoon-feed you. Examine the Scriptures daily. has definite, predictable results. 
In the case of the Bereans, many of them believed. Acts 17, 11 to 12. How do you think you will ever truly believe in God's word? You have to examine the scriptures for yourself. You can't just take my word for it. You can't be lazy. Who ever said, here's a challenging question. Who ever said getting a biblical education was going to be, quote, easy? Who ever said that? Is that in the Bible? No. We have parables like the persistent friend. I need some bread. I need some bread. Go away! I need some bread! (laughs) What do you say after that? Seek and you shall find. Knock. I'll open the door. Not even just because I like you. I just want you to go away. Right? That's good advice. Whoever said a biblical education was going to be easy? But, but, but I can just get that guy with the nice teeth on my television if I get up early enough on Sunday mornings. I don't even have to go listen to you. I don't have to submit to anybody. Because when I don't like what he says, I go like this. You ready? Click. Some of you wish you could do that right now, huh? <laughs> Fast forward. <laughs> Whoever said it was easy? Honestly. Hasn't been easy for me. And I'm leading this congregation. So if it's not easy for the teacher, what makes you think it's going to be easy for the student? And don't say, oh, well, I'm above you. No, you're not. No student is greater than his teacher. So says Holy Scripture. So there you go. See, you're stuck with the truth. It's stuck to you now. Now you're just like, oh, man. Go to 2 Peter 3.16. The Bible doesn't propose lies like that. It says literally just the opposite. 2 Peter 3.16. Literally just the opposite. And if you ignore it, there's a definite result in that direction as well. 2 Peter 3.16. As also in Paul's letters... Okay, so Peter's teaching about Paul. Speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. If you've ever read Romans, think of the very first time you've ever read Romans. And you were like, right? Maybe you were saved, and you read Romans, and you had good intentions, and you walked away, and you were like, "Mm, I'm a little stuck. Good. It's called challenging. You don't learn everything in a day. Some things that Paul wrote were hard to understand, and that's okay. It doesn't mean the gospel's more complicated or the simplicity of the gospel has increased or, uh, excuse me, decreased in that case. Things haven't gotten more difficult. It just means you're that much more maligned. Some of you are like in your hearts already saying, it's true. The longer I stay with this, the simpler things become. They were hard at first to understand, but once, the only, the, like I've taught you a bazillion times, the only reason things are difficult for you to understand is because you're a mess. To God, everything's really simple. Right? You're a sinner, you need a savior. Here, I sent my son. Pretty simple, right? Well, what's the problem? Why are you all like this? You read, you read Romans, you're all like, Ugh. why? Because you come to the table all screwed up with doctrines, false doctrines, some even from false teachers, but many, many, many from a big old sewer pipe 
in your living room called a TV, and many, many others from like, you know, misinformed parents, school teachers, you come to the table all goofed up. That's why you're confused. It's not because the truth is confusing. It's not because God's not a God of confusion, so says Holy Scripture. It's not because God's confused about anything. It's because you're confused about everything. That's why it's difficult. Paul's ministry was to help unravel the mysteries, if you would. Some things are hard to understand. Part B, which the untaught and unable distort. That's what a, lab that's what a lazy person does. I don't understand it, so I'm going to speculate. Read Romans 1. I'm just going to speculate. I'm going to, remember we looked at the Greek word in Romans 1 for speculate? I'm going to invent. It carries with it the, the nature of inventiveness. Since I'm ignorant and I'm lazy and I don't actually search the scriptures for truth, I'm just going to invent a new God. I'm going to invent a God that never sends anybody to the lake of fire because that's more appeasing to my sensibilities. I don't like the idea of Uncle Jimmy spending eternity in hell. So I'm going to invent. I'm untaught. I'm not going to read it for the actual truth. I'm not going to walk by faith. I'm going to walk some other way. I'm going to invent new doctrines. Well, what happens here? Which untaught and unstable distort, as they, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. And then what's the final say on this? To their own destruction. To their own destruction, up here on the board. A person who rejects a challenge is, that is designed to stimulate spiritual growth is the person who seals their own fate. This person lives a distorted reality, unstable in all their ways. But then look at how Peter responds to this. Look at verse 17. You, therefore, beloved, and you see the love and affection there, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Unprincipled would be somebody who doesn't actually study the word of God. That's very dangerous. Unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Again, the point on the board. To their own destruction. A person who rejects a challenge that is designed to stimulate growth is the person who seals their own fate. Go to James 1.5. I've got that reference there as well. James 1, verse 5. <clears throat> These people live a distorted reality. Right? And when you have a distorted reality, even your perceptions change, right? Ever been intoxicated? You don't have to raise your hand. Some of you are like, what? <laughs> what happens when you're intoxicated? At the worst of it, before you pass out, the room's spinning, right? How good's your perception in that moment? Not very. How good's your perception if you're intoxicated with lies, with worldliness, with sinfulness? The room's spinning. You don't know upside down. Who are you to be guiding? The Bible says those two people are fools and they go into the same pit. Right? You follow a fool, you end up in the same pit. James 1.5 but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, 
and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. What about verse 6? He must ask in faith. How do you get faith again? Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. So if you're going to ask anything, it better be based on what? The word of Christ. But what if you never read the word of Christ? Oh, you just make stuff up, I guess. I say I want the truth. I say I want freedom. I I definitely want to be free. But look at verse 6. He must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought to not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What's the root cause? They don't have the word of truth in them. They're lazy. Up here on the board. Why does this thing keep coming from this pulpit? For months and months and months now, what have I been saying? Read your Bible. Read your Bible. If I was to die tomorrow, read your Bible. At least I know that's happened in most of your souls. Most of you, some of you were afraid to read your Bible. I'm just, I'm not educated enough. I only got an eighth grade education, or I just don't read very well. I read really slow. Or in DJ's case, he can only read the Old Testament references because they're all in caps. Huh? I'm just kidding. Right? I read really slow. You know, I, I can't read my Bible. That's one of the greatest, that is maybe the greatest lie, after lies about the gospel, of all time. We have a whole church in the neighborhood that tells you you can't read your Bible. Matter of fact, they read in the Latin so that you feel ignorant, especially ignorant and afraid to read your Bible. Why? Because it's satanic religion. They want you to remain in bondage. They want you to keep you away from the truth. How does any sinister dictator ever keep its citizens under its thumb? Ignorance. Do not educate them. It's no different with the Bible. If I, if I want to keep you in bondage, I say, hey, close your, don't even bring your Bible. Just listen to me. I pretty much get you to do anything I want. That's called a cult. But if I truly want you to be set free, to be able to you know, move about the cabin on your own, then I want you to know the truth. I want to educate you. That's what we're doing this morning. Why read your Bible? Well, first of all, it's a test. Proverbs 4, 7 says, uh, I'll show you that in a moment. But do, the test is, do you want to know the truth or not? That's the big test. Why read your Bible? Because, here, because every time I read it, something sticks to me and I've got to make a decision about it. My MC Hammer moves, they just don't work. Works for about three passages, and then the next thing you know, it's like, oh, man. Like those little burrs you get in the woods. I can't get this thing off me. So I just won't go to the Bible. I'll just go find me a teacher or a religion, big one around here, that'll lie to me about the truth. They'll just say, close my Bible and uh, just believe them. And the taller the hat, the more believable. I'm being funny. You can laugh, right? You're not going to get cursed because you laugh at the Pope. The dude's evil. You're not going to get cursed, okay? Hey, watch this. (laughs) Pastor Ed goes down. He's on the ground. Anybody know CPR? It's true. The guy's evil. I'll say it straight up. It's not like I'm not saying anything that God doesn't know. Proverbs 4, 7. The beginning of wisdom, acquire wisdom. And with all your acquiring, get understanding. 
Oh, that's beautiful, is it not? Imagine how you get a free education. It doesn't cost you anything to open your Bible. Your time, your energy, what it takes to seek, to knock, to search for. The remarkable thing about humility is that it promotes active learning, also known as seeking for truth. Go to Psalm 26, verse 2. Psalm 26, 2. <clears throat> Psalm 26, verse 2. This is David. You might learn from him. Actually, I think I've got the New Living Translation, so if there's a little bit of a difference, just bear with it. The New Living reads, Put me on trial, Lord, and cross-examine me. Test my motives in my heart. Put me on trial, Lord, and cross-examine me. Test my motives and my heart. Do you have that attitude when you kneel in prayer? Do you have that attitude when you pray to God? Put me on trial. Cross-examine me. Test my motives and my heart. That's a fantastic attitude. That's a freeing attitude. Because all he's saying is, I just want to know the truth. I'm over here all mangled, right? I came to this thing all messed up. I just want to be ironed out. Do you know what I'm saying? I remember that old video I showed you about 10 years ago. The guy with the ball-peen hammer. God was beating him with the ball-peen hammer. You know, the sort of, you know, he's all messed up, and God just keep ding, ding, ding. You know, you get the little knuckles sticking out and everything else. You just want to be ironed out. I just want to know, how else am I out of disoriented. How am I out of joint? Ow, that one hurt. You know, like when you get your finger put back in, that's out of joint. Ow, 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 ow. But beautiful thing, if you think about it, if you started here and you go like a, this way, all of a sudden there's all this space now that you can be encouraged by. Hey, I'm no longer in, out of joint that way. What you end up learning is the more mature you get, the more positive reinforcement you get. It can be a little ugly in the beginning, but if you stick with it over time, there's more space to be encouraged. So you, instead of opening up your Bible and going, oh, you open your Bible and go, ah. Let me do that again. That's the beauty of sticking with the Word of God. Up here on the board. We must do that very thing that Jesus commanded. Seek. Seek it. That means for some of you, you have to put some other things aside. That's between you and the Lord. Humble seeking requires proper perspective first, of course. Passive learners have already flunked the test, and so they stagnate. It's the primary reason why some of you wallow in your self-pity. It's your own fault. I know that's really hard. I know some of you are like, you don't understand. I have real problems. I get it. I have problems too. But God's not disjoint. God's not... God's perfect. We're the ones that are out of whack. Some of us wallow in our self-pity. Say, oh, you don't understand. I'm this or I'm that or my, my childhood was this or my, you know, I, I was this or that. Well, you know what? Being stuck there, wallowing in it, 
is your own fault. Because the Bible says the truth will what? Make you free. Wallowing in self-pity is not freedom, that's bondage. And if you stay there and you just stagnate and you say, that ball guy doesn't know what he's talking about, I'm going to go back to my old religion. Well, you've just signed up for another, I don't know, decade of wallowing in self-pity. And whose fault is that? It's your fault. It's your fault. The truth is meant to make you free. The truth may hurt. Hearing that you're wallowing in self-pity may not be the message you want to hear this morning. But it's the truth. And if you reject it, well, whose fault is that? So it's your own fault. And all of your little alternative attempts to find peace and contentment are just substitutes, void of any ability to actually deliver you. So you say, all I got to do is just stay distracted. Lord knows that there's enough distractions in America. We're a prosperous country. All I got to do is just stay distracted. Just stay in front of the wave. You know what I mean? I call it. Just stay distracted. When, when the distraction's gone, you know what's left? You and the Lord in prayer. And you're like, that scares me. I need a new distraction. Got to buy a new bicycle. <laughs> right? And then you just become a fitness queen or a fitness guru. Let's do everything. I'm just going to focus on being a fitness guru. And you find out that doesn't work. You're still miserable. You're in good shape, but you're miserable. Or I'm going to start doing this, or I'm going to start doing that. All those little attempts, that's all they are. They're just substitutes for truth, because you don't want the truth. And in the end, it's to your own destruction, as we read. Don't be angry with the messenger, by the way. I'm being a good friend right now. Here's what the Spirit's been saying all week, even in the blog. Even in the blog, grace isn't necessarily easy. You need to get that out of your head. You can't be lazy in this journey. It's work. It's actual work, I know, right? It's actually work. Grace isn't necessarily easy. Never pervert the grace of God in such a way that it enables a passive lifestyle and or passive learning. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Whatever it is, why isn't it enough for you? Whatever it is. We don't even have to get into specifics. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Whatever that is, whatever the Bible says that is, however you relate to that in your own level of spiritual growth right now, why isn't it enough for you? Why do you want, why do you want, God's, why do you want God to spoon-feed you everything? Why, why do you want that thing? From experience, I can tell you the answer to the question on the board is that people don't want to obey God's primary directives. Christians, even, saved ones, uh, I might add, want their cake and eat it too. They want their cake and eat it too. In other words, we are famous for keeping the parts of the Word of God that appeal to us and rejecting the parts that don't. We're famous for it. Some of you have already done that this morning. I don't like that. La, 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 la. Whose fault is that? You want proof on this point? That we're famous for keeping the stuff we like and the stuff we don't, we reject the things we don't like? 
How about that we all live in some form of licentiousness or another? Every last one of us. Licentiousness just means, think of licentiousness, licenses in there, license to sin. We think because God is gracious that he enables us. That's what licentiousness basically is. Since God is gracious, he enables us to live in sin. We have a license then to sin. Because we know that God's grace covers everything in the end. Hmm. Over here, yeah? A little contorted. Scott, I can't believe you're going to make me do it. I thought it was going to be Lily, but it's your leg. Lily, you see that? Shame on him. You can say it. Go ahead and say it. I'm just kidding. It's like, shame on you. Even I know better. <laughs> I've only been here one day. <laughs> we all live in some form of licentiousness or another. Every last one of us. For some of us, it's living a lie. Living a fantasy life that doesn't actually exist. For others, it's lying to others. Maintaining an avatar. You know what I'm talking about? Go on Facebook. As if the way the Lord has made you isn't wonderful enough. I've got to convince the rest of the world that my life and my existence is way better than what it actually is. That's called an avatar. So you're lying to others. Just a ruse, right? And for others, maybe it's a little more creative, like living a double life. Like living a double life. I know people like that. I'm speaking to some of you right now. You literally live a double life. You have a life in here that you present to the church, and you have a life out there in the, in the darkness that nobody really knows about except God. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're living a double life, led on by double-mindedness, like James wrote about up here on the board. James 1, 7 and 8 in the New Living Translation. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything we do. We read that in the uh, New American earlier. The NLT is nice, too. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Oh, you mean God's grace has boundaries? Yep. There's another one. It literally says in Holy Scripture, not everybody gets treated the same way by the Lord. Oh, that's not gracious. No, that's your human sensibilities thinking God is just going to go like this without discretion. In other words, he's going to be a bad parent and just enable everyone, even if they're out of joint. It's okay. Keep, yeah, it's okay. The kid just explodes in the end. You know that happens, right? Parents who enable their children to the point where the kid literally explodes and they say, what happened? What do you mean what happened? You should have disciplined them. And instead you just kept feeding them. You kept enabling them. Not judging anybody. We've all done it. You just kept enabling them. But I love them. Mm, you do, but that's not love. That's your weakness. That's your, actually your selfishness. That's not love for them. That's love for yourself because it's easier for you to be that thing and say it's love than actually help them. You see? Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Yes, the Lord's grace has boundaries. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world and they are unstable in everything they do. So yeah, there are people out there, dipsukos is behind their loyalty is divided, double-minded, double-souled, remember that? There are people I'm talking to right now who, have, who are literally living double lives. The, sad, the saddest thing is I know it. 
And I'm just way up here. I don't, you know, who am I? And I know it. What do you think God sees in your heart? Paul addressed the point the Spirit's making here. The truth is that we are all infected in one way or another by the very things we proclaim to hate. We say we hate the idea of offending a sovereign, holy God. And yet, we abuse His grace when it comes to our weaknesses. For example, and I've got to pick a spot here in a moment to close. For example, I don't know, I don't know what he's doing here, but this is, this is funny. Suppose the Holy Spirit convicts you the way he convicted me about my TV. Everybody said, we're back to this again. Not giving up my TV. I'm not there yet, okay? I've been over this like nine times. I'm not there yet. That's between you and the Lord. But let's just suppose for a moment, he said, listen, that thing's a sewer pipe. You got to get it out of your house. Take control of your house. Just saying. Okay, so suppose that happened. Suppose the Holy Spirit convicts you the way he did about me with my TV. Okay. Instead of actually listening to him, though, you reject his voice. You know, the one that's meant to set you free. Does he blow up your TV and you along with it because you chose to reject his good counsel? No, does that really happen? No. And blow it up. Some of you are like, oh, could that happen? Technically, it could happen. We, we would call it the sin unto death. It'd be a pretty funny sounding one. They got blown up by their own TV. <laughs> so you get convicted. You say, la, la, la. Does he blow up your TV? No. Does he blow you up? No. And here's the thing. <clears throat> You've been convicted and you keep on turning your TV on, despite the conviction remaining. Remember what the truth does? It sticks to you. Right? The truth is the truth. It's there now. Right? I'm just supposing you got convicted. That's all. I'm not saying you have. just saying. And so you keep turning on your TV five hours and four minutes a day. That's the average. Hmm. Is God's patience with us a license to go on sinning? In other words, just because he hasn't blown you and your TV up yet. Does that say, oh, well, that's because I have a license to sin because of grace, you know. Grace makes everything easy, including enabling me in my dysfunction. That doesn't seem right, and it's not. But that's what licentiousness is, a license to sin. You say, well, God hasn't, God hasn't, <laughs> God hasn't killed me yet, so I must be good. No, you're not good. You're missing out on a whole host of things that he promises you. But you're too myopic. You're too self-absorbed, you see. Too self-centered to see the truth of the matter. That you could be free, but you choose bondage. So is God's patience with us a license to go on sinning? Some misconstrue living in perversion as a good thing because it somehow proves God's love and grace for them. I, I used to be the perversion I used to hear years ago. I am what I am by the grace of God. Wait a minute. You just said that and you're being a complete jackass? So that's how you view God's grace? It allows you to live as a jackass? I am what I am by the grace of God. Ha, 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 ha. Take bottoms up. You know what I'm getting at? I'm, I think you might have missed something. I think celebrating God's grace that way might be an unholy practice. Might not be good for your, for your welfare. 
So some misconstrue this perversion, living in a perversion, because it somehow proves God's love and grace for them. That's akin to saying, hey, I crap all over my parents, and I use them every chance I get. So that, this is the kind of guy I am, so that they get to show me how much they love me by enabling me all the more. And that's such a swell guy. I would do that for them. I would give them the gift of keep on giving to me. What? Wait a minute. What? I'm just going to, so therefore, therefore, in my perverted little brain, I'm going to keep crapping on them and keep using them so that they can love me all the more. So they can show me how much they love me because I know how much they like to do that. That's called licentiousness. Yuck. That is profoundly gross. And I'll end with what Paul said. Go to Romans 5.20 and then I will close. Then we'll close. Romans 5.20. What did Paul say about that thing called licentiousness? This perversion that See, it gives God the opportunity to grace me out. I am what I am by the grace. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Right? Romans 5.20. The law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, guess what happened? Grace abounded all the more. Oh, that's cool. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life to Jesus Christ our Lord, what shall we say then? Verse 1 of chapter 6. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Hey, that sounds like a bright idea, doesn't it? We can actually show the rest of the world how gracious God is by living like a jackass. You see, God keeps picking me up out of the sewer. Isn't God great? You, you might need to go to remedial class. You might have to go back a few steps. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may... What does Paul say? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Up here on the board. Perspective. Grace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. And I have it in quotes. Because... You know, love covers a multitude of sin. God loves us. I get it. Through mercy, he may choose to be patient with us. He may choose to, quote unquote, overlook something, not blow you, up, you and your TV up, okay? He may choose to do that thing because he has a, a bigger plan, something else going on that we don't know about. But our attitude cannot be licentiousness. It cannot be oh, well, I have God's grace, so I just get, you know, get out of jail free, which really translates over time into I just pull it out whenever I feel like going to sin. I'm going to premeditate sin, and then I'm going to pull my grace card out. And so I just keep it right here, you know what I mean? I just keep it right here, my little, I call it my grace card, right? And I show the whole world it, you see? Gonna go, gonna go do this dastardly thing right now. But I have my grace card, huh? Huh? I just do that. I just wave it at everything. It's like a magic wand. 
I think your attitude might be off. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I know it's off. That's what we call licentiousness. Grace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. That perversion is what we call licentiousness or a license to sin. I'll end this way. Last week, the Spirit asked, then why is life not always easy? I mean, does God see a bigger, does God have a bigger viewpoint? Yes. Does God have a bigger plan? Yes. Does God know lots and lots of things that we don't know? Duh. Right? Why is life not easy? And this was the answer. I think Scott brought it up on Tuesday. The short answer is that God knows our fleshly tendencies. In other words, if he just turned around and enabled us, if he said, I'm going to make life so, it's kind of cool, it just crashed just now. I'm just going to make life so easy that you can do pretty much anything you want because you have the quote-unquote grace card. He would be the worst possible parent in the history of parenting because he would just become basically an enabler. He would essentially enable you to live in sin every waking moment without any uh, recourse whatsoever. And it's not about him saying, you disobeyed me. That is actually a sin, disobeying God, no matter what it is. But it's about your own protection. It's about you walking into a pit. It's about you continuing on in sin. It's about you choosing to stay in bondage instead of being set free. That's why he does those things. That's why he puts back pressure on us. That's why he lets us suffer. You know, the, to the porcelain king, blah, nobody's ever been there. I'm the only guy huh, that's ever been drunk in here. Or, all right, so, all, right, so, all right, so since you're going to be making fun of me, I'm going to get back to you. How about some of you with your ridiculous relationships? Women, why do I always go out with jerks? You shouldn't even be going out in the first place. If you're not courting to get married, you shouldn't be going out. There's no such thing as legitimate dating in the Bible. Does everybody understand that? Everybody's like, I don't like that one. Yeah, well, too bad. That's the truth of the matter. That is the actual truth of the matter. There's no such thing as dating the way Americans de describe dating in the Bible. It's just sinful behavior. But, but on my five hours and four minutes a day, it's shown as like people having sex on the first date. Jeez, I'm not doing that, so I've got to be better. So? Who cares? There are people murdering people. So what, you can kick somebody because it's a lesser crime? Do you know what I'm getting at? Where was I even going with that? I don't, oh, the ladies, because you guys didn't laugh at my thing, you know. I'm the only one that gets drunk. How about you ladies? Oh, why do I keep going? Why do I keep Well, stop going out with jackasses who could give a crap about Jesus Christ and stop pretending that they do. Oh, no, no, they do. They're, they're a believer. Really? Really? They're a believer? What say them about Jesus Christ? I have no idea what they think about Jesus Christ. That's why you keep ending up in misery. That's why the dysfunction junction remains in your life. Because you play these stupid games. And God's saying, I, do, I want you to be in pain right now. I really do. I want you to discover this pain as a result of your poor decisions. So that you won't do it anymore. Because I am trying to sanctify you for my good purposes. Not your fleshly sensibilities. Not your little desires to you know, live the good life. I'm trying to sanctify you. Let me do this thing in you. That's why. That's why life's not always easy. And when you use that word easy, and I'll close on this, do not cast it on the Lord.
Because Jesus Christ said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Yeah, if you understand what he's talking about. Do not cast your definition on that term, easy, using your fleshly sensibilities. Well, it's easy for me. No, it's not. It's going to be to your own destruction. Think about those things, my friends. God knows best. Amen? And he knows that what you need at any point in time. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us confidence in you. Thank you for reminding us that you do know best, Father. And thank you for always making the truth available to us because that is what sets us free. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes and then out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.